All right, welcome to another Ember Weekend. I'm Jonathan Jackson. And I'm Chase McCarthy. I'm Robert Jackson. And we are joined today by Luke Melia, who has graciously been able to find some, some of his own time to talk us through some awesome stuff, including some history talk. Hopefully, we'll hit that early on and, and keep on going. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a really exciting show. And uh, let's just dive right in. All right. So I think we're going to dive in with uh, talking about uh, early Ember history. So a big part of the reason why I wanted to have you on the show, Luke, is that it has recently been revealed to me that, and I think this is public information, I'm pretty sure I, I confirmed, that you are uh, are stepping down as the organizer of Ember NYC. And I know from my own personal experience, Ember NYC was a huge, uh, had a huge impact on my own Ember development because I also ran a meetup group. And this was kind of like the uh, proto Ember meetup. And I think I think maybe you can talk about that maybe and and just kind of walk us through like maybe your early experiences with with Ember and setting up that meetup and kind of how you came to uh, to be really kind of fundamental and foundational in the Ember space. Uh, sure. That sound, sounds great. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, we can fly back in time to <laughs> 2011. And in mid-2011, I was starting a new company with my business partner, Maria Seidman. And one of the the key pieces of technology that we wanted to build was a, a really easy to use web-based editor for creating and maintaining um, uh, mobile applications. So this, this was kind of like the core, pretty much the core vision of the, of the product that we wanted to create. And so I set out to try to figure out how the heck we were going to build this thing. And at the time, the options that were kind of out there in 2011 were um, Cappuccino, Sprout Core, and then um, Backbone was in its kind of fledgling days. Maybe it was maybe a year and a half old at that point. I do and, like Cappuccinos, Luke. I don't know if that's the yeah. Same kind of I think thing Cappuccinos <laughs> are, are fantastic, very popular among the caffeinated set. What one thing I, I didn't particularly care about uh, Cappuccino, the software framework, was that you had to write your code using. Objective J, I believe it was called. What Don't is quote that? me on that. Oh, yeah. That was a variant of JavaScript that was Objective C like, I believe. It may have compiled, it's compiled down to JavaScript. And so for me, that was a big con in that, in the, yeah. in the Cappuccino I mean, column. It's a pretty big con. <laughs> yeah. Sproutcore had a couple of things going for it. Thing number one was that um, Apple had built MobileMe, which later became iCloud, as listeners probably know it, in Sproutcore. And, and there was a, that was a pretty impressive web experience for the time. And then the second big thing they had going for it is that a, a developer, software developer who I, whose career I had watched pretty closely with his contributions to Merb and Rails had recently started working on Sproutcore. And that was Yehuda Katz. And you know, I, I said, man, if, you know, if Sproutcore is what Yehuda is betting on, then that's a pretty good sign that, that there's an interesting future here and some interesting technology. And so with that, I bet my fledgling venture on, on Sprout Core, 1.6 at the time, I believe. Um, <laughs> and I started to build out this editor experience. And, you know, the tools that Sprout Core had were pretty awesome for building the, the type of experience that I wanted. And it included, for I gave you some examples, uh, Sproutcore Data Store, which had features like store forking and you know the ability to you know, customize the serialization of your JSON to work with your backend. It had there was a third-party library called Sproutcore State Chart, which um, was super helpful in kind of organizing your application into sections. One might dare say routes, although we didn't call it that at the time, and and so there were some pretty pretty powerful tools. At the same time, it was it was pretty raw and it was pretty foreign for me as a web developer because there were no templates to speak of at the time. Every component was created and composed based on JavaScript objects. CSS was not any kind of CSS experience that you would find recognizable today. There were themes, but the themes were extremely difficult to override, <laughs> very difficult to customize, and 
you know, and there were a lot of class names involved, I remember. So anyway, we'll uh, put this on fast forward a little bit. I started building out this first version. We started, we raised a little bit of money early in the company. We were able to be fortunate enough to hire my old colleague, Chris Selden. He helped me improve this editor experience. And we were, we had gotten it to the point where enough had been built that we said, you know, it's really, it's time to turn to the mobile side of the experience. How are we going to build this mobile piece? And we evaluated a few different options going fully native, which meant that Chris and I together would have had to build an iOS app and an Android app, which seemed pretty daunting at the time, considering neither of us had experience in either. (laughs) And we also evaluated jQuery mobile, which we actually did a spike on and quickly hit under the covers and ran away. Uh, (laughs) And that didn't leave us too many other options at the time. However, Having been, you know, being following the Sprout Core development, we saw that Yehuda and this guy named Tom Dale were working on a new repo called Sprout Core Two. They were, and both Tom and Yehuda at the time were working for this company called Strobe. And Charles Jolly, who was the founder and I believe CEO of Strobe, was kind of the original creator of Sprout Core, as I understand it. And he's the person who brought it into Apple. And the, in many ways, this, the company Strobe was kind of built and funded around like, hey, we've got this amazing open source project, Sprout Core. Think of all the cool things we could do with it. And VCs said, oh, sure, go for it. So Tom Yehuda had this Sprout Core 2 repo going. And the, the, the promise of Sprout Core 2 was that it was going to be more web-like, so a little bit more emphasis on templates and CSS as opposed to this kind of more desktop UI framework style that, that Sprout Core 1 was. More modular and lower memory footprint, which was a huge deal because Sprout Core 1 was quite a memory hog. I remember way back Peter Wagenet t- talking to me about building a an app in Sprout Core 1 for, for NPR that re- ran on a iPad and they had all sorts of memory problems with it. You know, the both the iPads were underpowered back in those day those days, you know, mobile devices in general. And you know, and Sprout Core was quite a consumer of the memory. Um, so anyway, these two these features um, seemed like they were really would be a really good fit for mobile. And so Chris and I once again made a uh, reckless and exciting bet on this uh, technology for mobile, Sprout Core two started building out, made some good progress. And we also thought to ourselves, hey, like all the, the future engineers that you know work at Yap will be able to transfer their, their knowledge about how to work in the editor to be able to work on our mobile app too. And won't that be a great efficiency? That is one of the few speculations of my career that actually uh, worked <laughs> out to be true. <laughs> so we'll fast forward a few more months. Mobile apps looking really good. Chris in particular has dove pretty deep down into the Sprout Core 2 code base and contributed back some optimizations, performance optimizations, since we were running on you know, these relatively young crop of mobile devices at the time, these iOS and Android devices. And around December of 2011, I found myself on the West Coast visiting family, and I happened to be in the Bay Area for at the time that the very first Ember meetup was happening in San Francisco. And I believe that Ember had just been renamed to Ember from Sprout Core 2. Well, there um, was a middle stop at Amber, I think, for like there a was day. A, there was a, a day-long middle stop <laughs> at Amber. And I guess, I think listeners might be interested in like the quick story about why was it renamed, um, what happened there, because there's some, there's some fun drama uh, for us there as well in, in our history. And that's that Strobe, you, mentioned, you remember this company that I mentioned that was VC-funded around Sprout Core, Strobe had reached the end of its line, had spent the money that it raised and did not have a path forward to sustainability or growth. And as many companies before them and many companies after them, the management team orchestrated a aqua hire so that Strobe employees would be hired by Facebook and the company would cease to exist. And presumably the investors would get a little bit of money and the employees would get jobs. So as you might imagine, for Chris and I, hearing that news over IRC, we had some concerns about this. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we knew that obviously these things were open source, they weren't going to disappear on us, but we also were really counting on ongoing development and maintenance of them. And so we really felt like, wow, we have really made a terrible choice and we're going to be in for 
a painful time ahead. And it wasn't until about four days after that initial IRC rumor that we heard about this Aquahire that we heard that uh, not everybody from Strobe was going to Facebook. And in fact, there was a small rebellious band of folks. I believe the list, I may get this wrong, but I believe the list is was Peter Wagonet, Leia Silber, Tom Dale, Yehuda Katz, and Carl Lurch, who said, we are not going to work for Facebook and said, we are going to um, spin up our own consultancy. And not only are we going to spin up our own consultancy, but we're going to continue to work on Sprout Core 2. And we're going to we're going to rename it at, the, at this point in time because it seems like a good idea to make a clean break from the past, given everything that was going on. So that's how Spark Retreat became Amber and then Ember, and how Chris and I had renewed hope in the future of this project, and and decided, wow, like we better get more serious about contributing to this thing so that it actually survives. <laughs> um, so so we both, um, you know started to dig in. Chris was already pretty deep into the code base. I started kind of, you know, reading the code, starting doing some documentation commits and, and just, you know, generally trying to commit, contribute to the well-being of the project. And this brings me to the trip to to San Francisco in mid-December of 2011. I go to the meetup. I, you know, sit, sit probably towards the back. There are probably 25 people there or so. Tom gave a big part of the presentation. Um, he was interrupted frequently by Yehuda in the front row. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever experienced, experienced to, to that. see things don't change. <laughs> and um, so after the presentations, I went up to the front. I introduced myself to Tom. I took my phone out of my pocket and I showed him the app that Chris and I were working on. And he was blown away. <laughs> he was like, you, you made this? <laughs> and, um, and so he invited us to the then like secret uh, campfire channel where you know the the 20 teams in the world that were building anything real in ember were hanging out and we kind of continued to get deeper more deeply involved in the community and contributing so so that's probably a good segue to uh, how ember myc started because so I, I had started to get connected with the the folks who were kind of at the core of working with working on Ember at the time. And I was back in New York and thought, man, it would be really great to get Yehuda out to give a talk here. And I had recently inherited the SproutCore meetup, SproutCore NYC, from an engineer who um, had, was moving out of New York to, to the West Coast and you know, could no longer run the meetup. Now, he had only run two meetups ever, two actual events. And I think I had only run one before, one since then. So it wasn't exactly a gangbusters meetup. Um, <laughs> but I reached out to, to Yehuda, who connected me with Leia to um, coordinate the possibility, you know, look, look into the possibility of him swinging through New York and giving a talk. And as it turned out, uh, he had a speaking engagement on the books in Philadelphia at the Philly Emerging, Te- uh, Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference, Philly ETE, a great conference if ever, any of you have a chance to go at some point. Much more startup friendly than the name sounds, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and so the arrangements were made that I would attend the conference and then uh, drive with Yehuda from um, Philadelphia to New York, where we would that night do a Ember meetup or Sprout Core meetup with where we in which we would talk about Ember. And we that meetup sold out. We were at standing room capacity at Mint Digital's offices, who graciously hosted that first one. I remember looking out into the crowd and like seeing a bunch of people I didn't know, including this one one dude with a red bandana tied around his forehead, who turned out to be Alex, Alex Machinier, who later wrote a couple of generations of the Ember router. And I'm trying to think if there were any, any other Ember famous people there at that meetup. I'm sure there were. And, and then and that kind of kicked off the community in New York. So immediately following that, that event, which was April 2012, we just did meetups every month in New York. And um, it grew to the point where you know we would we would have over a hundred people at Ember MYC meetups you know pretty regularly and great talks. I didn't know much about running a meetup at the time, and so like the first year of meetups, they would all go like three and a half hours. <laughs> we would just like have like talk after talk after talk, and I loved it. I was like, oh, this is great, and I, it really it really took me like a year to realize that maybe this was not that was not for everybody. <laughs> so. 
so yeah, so I think that that is kind of some of the early days of that process. Um, you know, through the meetup, I met some you know, great people. I remember I would run as kind of mid between talks. I would do Ember trivia contests where I would come up with questions, and then sometimes we would make like I think Alex made a. Um, a Jeopardy online kind of Jeopardy game built in Ember that we would use sometimes to run mm-hmm. the trivia. And then I, anyway, there was this one guy who was kind of way, always sat way off to the side at this one round table at Pivotal away from everybody else. And I would ask a question, it would stump the entire crowd. And then inevitably he would kind of, uh, you know, slowly raise his hand, seeing that nobody else was going to answer and give like a dead on correct answer. And that person turns out to be Ryan Toronto, um, who is now one half, one half of Ember Math. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, it was just, it was a really, really cool time. Tom and Yehuda were in and out of New York a bunch in those early years. They were doing consulting work for Chris C, who was at McGraw-Hill, who funded a lot of the early development on the Ember router and on Ember data. And that, in, you know, his contribution to that, this whole process, you know, can't be underestimated. It's hard to get a a company that's relatively old school like McGraw-Hill to invest as much in open source as Chris C um, managed to make happen in those days. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was great. <laughs> yeah, that's I, awesome. The, in terms of the, uh, the meetups and stuff, you were also live streaming them, right, on YouTube. I don't know, when, when did that start? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we were really fortunate to have my friend Lee volunteer pretty early on. I want to say within the first six months of the meetup really getting going. So sometime in 2012, Lee started, he offered, just, you know, came up and said, hey, I'm pretty good with AV stuff. Would you like me to record these? And so initially we would record them and then he would transcode them and get them up on YouTube. And that process often took like, I don't know, three weeks or so. You know, it's a hobby project. It wasn't something where he could just take the next day and get, get it done. And then, you know, if you're, probably a few years later, he said, I think we can stream, you know, we can live stream this directly. And then he got even more into it where he had this whole rig where he would, he would show up with this whole rig on wheels um, that he would, you know, drive into the meetup in order to carry this thing. Cause it was so heavy and we would all have to carry it back to the car with him. <laughs> so, but, but it was, it's really, it was, you know, Lee's initiative and contribution that made, made it possible to get that video out. And it was interesting because to me at the time, I was just like, Hey, you want to do this? Awesome. That's great. You know, happy to support that. But it wasn't until I started to kind of travel to conferences and to the first Ember camp, which I believe was 2013, and then to the first you know Ember conf in 2014, that people would come up to me and say, hey, I am so glad and so grateful for Ember NYC. I watch every video as soon as it comes out. And I said, like, whoa, <laughs> I had no idea that this, you know, the impact was was so wide. And, and so that's been really satisfying. It's great to have this, you know, this incredible archive now of, um, of all the cool talks that have been delivered over yeah, the years. That's, that's why I asked, because uh, when, when John and I started the Ember Jacks meetup for Jacksonville, we initially, I think we started playing the videos every time we kind of had a lull in speakers or like we couldn't come up with something and there was something that had been covered really well in Ember NYC. And then eventually we started li- like live streaming. So I think more than a few times we actually had a meetup where we were just all sitting around like watching the live stream. <laughs> that's cool. That's great. Which, uh, for an, from an organizer's perspective, it's you know it's not exactly you know the hardest thing. It's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Luke, you got a really good thing going. We're gonna piggyback on it. We're well, gonna give the, them beer and pizza. Yeah, but the nice thing is that like I, you know, you have curated talks. You have like like mm-hmm. someone's put them together. You, you're actually putting on a thing where people can get together and do the social bits and still have a nice talk. And I think that's huge. I know when I first got into Ember. Apparently, a couple of years after Luke was already doing it, a while, <laughs> the like the first set of resources I'm I'm looking through is like Ember NYC videos and like this was I think also back then there was a podcast called Ember Hot Seat and a, a couple of folks like Trek and Alex Machinier and a few others like were, were had been on it and and then one of them mentioned like Ember NYC and I'm like watching all the back like as much of the back catalog as I could and like it was a huge resource and still is frankly yeah. For, for just like all of the, like, like the, you can kind of watch the way the community is thinking about problems over time. Like if you go back and, and pull up like a, a video from a couple of years ago, you're, you're going to see, and then compare that to today, you're going to see the, the different thinking in like how we're doing like Octane stuff. And like, it's just, 
it's really neat to be able to go back and compare that sort of that breadth of insight into what was going on and what was important to people, like what were the things that we were talking about and uh, all that stuff. That, that, it's really, really awesome. Yeah, I think it's also interesting to if when you go back and you look at some of that stuff, or I think back on the talks that, that I gave at Ember OIC and that others did, the things that we spent a lot of time on were often the kind of trickiest parts of Ember. So I remember, you know, early on giving a lot of talks about, you know, what about what the context was at different parts of your template. And time and time again, the talk that I would, you know, give about like kind of grokking this difficult concept, a year later or a year and a half later, Ember would have basically removed that problem, <laughs> right? So it would have like evolved to the point that that advice was irrelevant because it no longer existed. It was no longer a problem in Ember. Yeah, they were just um, watching your talks and were really annoyed at all of the, <laughs> all of the verbal acrobatics you had to do. So uh, they went around and changed it all, yes. Yeah, but it, is, it, it was really cool to see and still is cool to see you know, just the incredible evolution of Ember uh, over the years. And it's just been like this great kind of steady drumbeat of progress. And that continues today. And the, you know, the Octane stuff is super exciting. And, and it do, again, removes this, you know, entire categories of confusion, I think, for folks. It makes, makes, thing, makes the on-ramp on easier, et cetera. Yeah, totally. And as, a, as an aside, I believe when we first launched Ember Weekend, you actually gave us a shout out in the Ember NYC, like immediately following the first episode release, or maybe like the one or what, like early on, one of the first few episodes, which was very like heartening and uplifting for us to like, because I think, I think at the time, even the website wasn't designed. Was that right, Chase? It looked <laughs> really so. ugly. Yeah. yeah for the was... first like 10 episodes, it was bad. <laughs> Hey, well, I made I'm that. Av- I'm an avid listener, and I don't think I've ever missed a Ember Weekend episode since you guys started. So it's been great. To bring the Ember NYC discussion full circle, Jonathan, back to your original comment about uh, me stepping down from an organizer role. Um, it's true. Uh, I have handed the reins over of Ember NYC. Um, it's they are in very capable hands uh, now, belonging the hands belonging to Matthew Beale. Um, known as Mixonic on the interwebs as well. Uh, Matthew is a member of the Ember core team and uh, was a longtime Ember NYCer. moved out to the West Coast uh, for a couple of years uh, for his wife's residency, I believe, and is now um, back in New York. So, um, so I'm very excited that Matthew's taken over. That transition's already um, happened and uh, the meetup uh, quality is... Um, uh, very, very happy with the strength of um, the programs that he's bringing together already. And uh, it's quite a treat, actually, to be able to attend uh, as a participant. Um, the reason that I made this decision is that my family and I are uh, moving away from New York. Uh, this August, we are uh, becoming a location-independent family for um, a few months, traveling around Southeast Asia um, slowly as we um, work and uh, homeschool remotely, uh, and then eventually the plan is to settle in Singapore for a few years, um, and we're doing uh, this all as a kind of big family adventure. So very happy to see Ember MYC continue, and um, I wish uh, the community and uh, Matthew all the best. I will be tuning in remotely, um, no doubt, and uh, and do plan eventually to return to New York and uh, be involved again. So uh, yeah, so viva la Ember MYC. Really interested in, and you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Was the Ember and Cordova integration? Can you talk a little bit more about how that is to work with, and like, is it still relevant now? Is there another option, or are you still maintaining any apps that are they're using Cordova? Yeah, great question, Chase. So, last question first. Yes, the our app is still a Cordova hybrid Ember native app on both iOS and and Android, and we continue to invest heavily in the in our Ember mobile experience. And there's a few reasons why that's been a good choice for us. One of those is that you know, I mentioned our editor experience before. We also have a web-based preview of the apps that people create. And then, of course, we have the Android and iOS experience. So we have components and visual experiences that we're creating that need to be delivered in all four of those environments. And the idea with a you know very small team of having to recreate those in multiple technologies is not that appealing. 
Whereas what we've been able to accomplish now is we have a, a project that we call Mobile UI, and all the Ember components that can appear in one of our mobile apps are resident inside of that Mobile UI project. We use Ember Freestyle to have a, you know, a great development environment and living style guide that that add-on you know, hosts. And then that add-on is consumed by both our editor, our web-based preview, as well as our Ember app that lives inside of the Cordova apps. Let me talk a little bit about the relationship between Cordova and the Ember app and, and how we do this. And in, as an intro to that, I'll just do a quick thing about Cordova for those who haven't heard of it. Cordova is the uh, Apache open source name for PhoneGap. Uh, it was known, the technology was known as phone, by PhoneGap for many years before it joined the Apache Foundation. It essentially represents a bridge between native code and a embedded web view in a native app with the ability to make calls bidirectionally from JavaScript to Cordova plugins written in native code and back the other direction. And it also includes a ton of tooling around that basic concept to try to make uh, development easier. And then there's an ecosystem of Cordova plugins to perform various tasks. Those tasks include any kind of functionality that you need native code to do, like taking pictures with a camera, using you know, advanced geolocation, uh, scanning QR codes, you know, you name it, interacting with the contacts, database on the phone, adding items to calendars, anything where there is stuff that expo- is exposed to the native SDKs that is not exposed to the web runtime inside of one of the you know inside of the web view, Cordova plugins exist for. Unfortunately, the quality of the Cordova plugin ecosystem is pretty poor. Now, you might guess that this is th- that this was the case, considering that it's mostly being you know, it's Android and iOS code being written by people who have specifically tried to avoid <laughs> writing Android and iOS apps. And the kind of open source practices and maintenance, with some exceptions, but by and large, are just not very good. You know, update timetables are not great. And so what we decided to do strategically after kind of experiencing this is, you know, we decided to embrace the kind of very core of Cordova. So the set of native code that wraps the web view and provides for that communication bridge, as well as the, the essential plugin architecture that Cordova provides. And then everything else, we have gone our own way. So that means that all of the plugins that we use are stuff that we wrote ourselves, custom, you know, custom fit to our, for our purposes. And the tooling we use basically none of. So we essentially just use Cordova as a library as opposed to as a framework with its own CLI and stuff like that. It's not the only way to get it done, uh, to get the job done, but that's the, that's, the, that's the choice that we've made and we're fairly happy with it. So from a Ember apps perspective, there were a few kind of interesting pieces of thinking about how to interact with this. The traditional pattern for interacting with a Cordova plugin is that a Cordova plugin comes in a few parts. It comes in the, say, native Android, iOS, BlackBerry even, code, and then it comes with a JavaScript component that attempts to provide kind of some sort of friendly JavaScript OO interface that abstracts the fact that behind the scenes it's talking to the the native side of things. Stefan Penner uh, was worked with us at Yap for a few years early on, and he, we all discovered promises together. Steph was um, pretty instrumental in popularizing them in the Ember community, and together we badgered Dominic to create the Promises A plus spec, which really created, catalyzed, if you will, the um, development of various Promise frameworks in uh, JavaScript and other languages. And so he came up with the, the realization that we could simply have a very simple promise API where we specify the name of the plugin that we're interacting with, the name of the plugin's method or action that we want to call, and then an array of arguments. And then the 
the Cordova plugin API already provided for uh, the idea of a successful response or a failure response, which maps really nicely to promises, you know, resolve or reject kind of pattern. And so that's the pattern that we use within our app to interact with our Cordova plugins. So the JavaScript side of these interactions are extremely thin. There's no abstraction between the JavaScript code that's running and the plugin interaction. We generally host those calls within services that you know line up nicely, uh, and this, those services often maintain their own state or other kind of um, functionality that they they need to participate well in the Ember app. And then we, our responsibility then is simply to make sure that both the Android and iOS implementations of those plugins can respond to those calls in a compatible in a manner that's compatible with each other, right, in a consistent manner across the platforms. So that's the that's been kind of the general pattern that we followed. In addition, we have we created an add-on that we call Yap Core which has the vast majority of the functionality of the mobile app. And then there's a very thin layer on top of that, which is the actual Ember app that consumes this Yapcore add-on. And we have one for the web-based preview and one for the Cordova app that essentially adapts that experience, that core experience to the appropriate external APIs. And in the case of the Cordova one, it's to those Cordova APIs. And then in the case of the web-based preview, it's often a smaller and less functional version of that that can run in a web browser. So that's the kind of basic architecture. On the Cordova side, how much shenanigans do you have to do to deal with the differences between the platforms versus what Cordova itself sort of absorbs? You know, like I'm imagining something akin to how like jQuery was good and useful to absorb difference between the, the various platforms. That's how my mental model of what Cordova is trying to do is, but I'm, I'm just curious how much that breaks down yeah. or doesn't. I don't where know. that does well is, uh, where, where Cordova does a great job is abstracting the communication bridge. So I don't have to think at all about when I do this Cordova.promise call and specify the plugin name and method. I don't have to think at all about how is that going to translate mechanically to there being a native call there. Once I'm inside of that, that method call, though, on the native side, that's basically where the where the help ends. At that point, you're I just see. running native code. There's no more Cordova abstractions that you're consuming or interacting with. The only piece that you know you'll call in the end is a method to actually send the result of your of this method call back to Cordova, and so it maintains back to the JavaScript side rather. And so Cordova is maintaining kind of a map of these the initial calls and where the callback should be routed to when it eventually goes back over the over the bridge. I see. I see. So so basically it's giving you the bridge functionality, the back and forth functionality, but basically once you're on either side of the bridge, it's totally the wild west and you're on your own. Exactly. Which, you know, if you if you become a consumer of Cordova CLI and the Cordova plugin ecosystem, you can do a lot of stuff at a higher level. As I said before, like like the quality that you're gonna get is going to be Probably pretty frustrating, depending on your yeah, your yeah. Bar, your own personal bar for quality. Yeah. And so, so we're really happy that that we are unencumbered by any other kind of framework facades or. I think I think way. part of the problem for us in this space, Luke, is that we're spoiled. <laughs> in that, like in general, the quality, at least my experience of the Ember ecosystem and Ember add-on ecosystem, is that. The quality level is actually quite high, and uh, like we're all about shared solutions and trying to do our best. And anyways, so we're, we're, when we go to other places when that doesn't hold true, it's usually very frustrating. That is my experience. Yes, yes, I, I think that that is uh, that is apt. <laughs> so um, I had another question about performance. Yeah. You touched on a little bit about it with Sprout Core, but in the early days of you know trying to do mobile device like web like browser-based with a bridge, mobile devices, Android ended up being a pretty big problem because of the JavaScript performance. Did you do anything to get around that? Yeah, it's a great question. We spent a lot of energy, um, and Chris Selden in particular spent a lot of energy at Yap working on performance stuff. And, you know, for for really a few years, the you know, rendering longer lists was just a non-starter. <laughs> I mean, it was a non-starter in a desktop web browser in Ember, much less on an Android device. And we would, you know, before 
coming up with some you know, solutions, you would tap a you know, tap to switch to a particular screen that was like a, a list of 200 people, and it would just sit there and you know do nothing for a few seconds before finally showing you that list, which is pretty unacceptable. It's, it's pretty frustrating. Similarly, if you were, for example, you wanted to animate that list in, which is not unusual for a mobile experience, that animation would often be you know super janky because of all the work that and you know memory pressure that you're putting on putting on the mobile device. So the first version of what became Ember Collection came out of Work It, yeah. And that's essentially the idea of virtualizing a list, which is you know, a pretty popular concept in UI, desktop UI SDKs. And so you're only actually rendering DOM elements that are visible on screen and maybe with a little bit of buffer on the front and back so that you can start scrolling while you're also kind of recycling these DOM elements and putting the correct content in them, then moving them to the bottom of the list so that they're ready to scroll on when you get to that point of the list. So that was probably the biggest investment and biggest performance win that we had to address like the, the worst performance problem. You know, one of the interesting things, you know, if you think about the progress of mobile devices from 2011 to 2019, is that you know, the power and capabilities and performance have has just grown by leaps and bounds. So, you know, there were times where we said, oh, like this is sort of janky. And then, you know, a year later, there'd be new devices and we said, and we would look at it again and be like, wow, this is butter, you know? <laughs> so it's been nice to be supported by that performance curve in mobile while we've gotten there. But we also learned, you know, a ton about GPU layers and about kind of architecting the DOM structure of our apps so that the type of types of animations that we were going to be doing involved simply moving one layer as opposed to having to move, you know, a bunch of different elements at once. And that's even got us to the point today where we can do really buttery and responsive interactive drags. So we have, you know, one of your kind of classic sidebar drawers where you can drag it out from the side. It follows your finger. As you move forward, you can throw it away with momentum, you know, it has momentum scrolling. And we've been able to do all that within the Ember app in a way that is, you know, I mean, could you tell if that it's not native if you really know what you're doing? You know, probably, but it's pretty damn good. And a lot of that is is not really kind of Ember specific, but you know, there are pieces again about like kind of how you structure your routes and how you lay everything out that you know that is Ember specific. Right. And were there there were probably Ember things that happened like decreased bundle size and like glimmer performance. Did that help at all? Absolutely. Yeah. Every one of those big kind of performance watershed moments in Ember um, you know was amplified for us on in our mobile experience and has made made life a ton better. And that's been a pretty magical part of the Ember experience as, as well as an end consumer is, you know, there have just been these moments in time where you do an upgrade and none of your app code changes, but you just, everything just got so much better. You know, I remember even just like when Mesomorphs, what were they called? Metamorphs? Metamorphs. Metamorphs. Yes. Um, and just how satisfying that was. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty awesome one. I think I finally understood Metamorphs, like when they, when somebody wrote a blog post about what they were when they were disappearing, like... <laughs> Do I, can you summarize for the audience? No, I probably can't now. Uh, I know they, they were used tracking for, elements, yeah. right? Just yep. to keep track, like for bookkeeping for Ember. I'm sure Rob has has more words on that. Yeah, ironically, so the thing that's really funny to me is that we we are basically reintroducing that concept, and I think it's hilarious. Uh, this is specifically for rehydration and <laughs> in the SSR mode. Like, basically, the point is you need something to denote, hey, this is a thing that was rendered. This is the starting boundary. This is the ending boundary. At the time, the metamorphs, quote unquote, were script tags, script type metamorph, I think it was. And then they'd have an ID, like it's just a number. And then you'd look for the end one that corresponds with the same number. And okay, great. That That is the boundary. This is when we were doing string-based templating. So way before like Ember 110, we're like basically doing handlebars, it's like the same style of handlebars that you would do on the server where it would render a string and then we were like splicing it into the into the DOM, right? So we had to know the starting and end locations to do the splice. That's the whole thing. But the thing that, that's funny is that like 
like it's all full circle, right? We're doing rehydration, and turns out when you do rehydration, you have to know what the boundaries of things are, so that as you're walking the dom to update uh, into the rehydrate, like ah, you have this dom uh, yes. given to you by the server, and now you have to <laughs> hook it up with a comp- uh, component. Turns out you need to know the starting and ending boundaries. Ha ha! We have a tool for this. I know. So, I, I so hold on, trick. hold on, hold on, though. So the difference is like five years, and now you can use comment nodes. So your yes. yeah. your dev tools will like make them dim. And you won't have to look at them as much. Yeah. Well, also, like, we removed them, right? So when we had yeah, rehydrate, yeah, yeah. they're not yeah, actually yeah. needed for rendering. It's just the initial right. rehydration. So as we walk the rehydration, the, removed, like, the DOM yeah. tree for rehydration, we just delete them, right? But it's like, it's just one of those things like, <laughs> oh, I know the solution. I know. I know. Call on me. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen this. <laughs> but are, are there but there are still special things you have to do for, like, uh, what was it, uh Tagless components or anything like that, like yeah. So in rehydration, it's just the same boundary node system, right? So so I don't know we'll how emit, we got here. We'll emit a yeah, comment yeah. node. We'll emit comment the comment <laughs> nodes, and it's basically a starting block, ending block that wrap the <laughs> entire template when it's rendered. The same is true when you invoke a component and it like yields back. That's all wrapped in like comment nodes that denote like a block start, block end. It really is quite close to the original metamorphs thing. <laughs> yeah. This is like the nostalgia episode. <laughs> and it, yeah, run, it, and it, it runs really on is. every dimension. <laughs> I don't know. So speaking of nostalgia, this is one thing I wanted to bring up in your history, Luke. Do you remember back at, oh, I don't even know what it was, but you and I paired and like we made nested add-ons a thing. Do you remember that? Ember CLI oh. 0.2.0? Yes, it was, vaguely. Uh, yes. Was it at an Ember conf? It, no, it was at, I want to say, uh, a conference up in Boston. Uh, Wiki Good Ember, mm-hmm. I think. I want to say the very first Wiki Good Ember but I can't remember where we were, but I remember sitting at the table with you and like we made the thing. And then the first time I was ever in New York was to speak at Ember NYC back in 2014, I think. And it was like, ah, here are all the, the new add-on hooks that you get. Uh, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it was great. That's awesome. It's funny. I probably have spent 1,000 times the amount of time that you and I spent together Debugging stuff related to nested add-ons. Now. Yep, yep, yep. I wasn't, I wasn't blaming you necessarily, Luke. I'm just saying. Hey, remember when Ember CLI was like simple and easy to understand? Uh, we, we wrote that. I wanted to say something about uh, Robert being so into the orbit stuff that he was just like awed in silence. Uh, <laughs> it's, anyway. it's, a, it's a rare moment we have. Yes. We got Robert to be quiet. <laughs> So, Luke, we actually, I think it was at Ember NYC maybe last month, we were chatting and uh, you told me that you were working kind of a lot in the Orbit space. And I was lucky enough to be able to work with Orbit maybe, I want to say like last year, and I thought it was awesome. So I was hoping maybe you can kind of walk through some of the stuff you've been doing in that space and just kind of maybe give our listeners kind of a, a little taste of the, the Orbit pie so to speak. <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> Orbit pie sounds delicious. Uh, <laughs> right? So it actually fits in really nicely with some of the stuff we were talking about with mobile and Ember because you know any, any kind of mobile app worth its, its salt has some sort of offline story. And we struggled with that for quite a bit when as Ember data consumers, offline really felt like something that was difficult to figure out how do you shoehorn it into the Ember data architecture. You can maybe kind of intercept adapters and, you know, maybe write to an offline store or read from an offline store. But it was, you know, pretty tricky, never quite felt good to us. And so when we had a new feature a couple of months ago coming down the pike that we're with an important offline story, we decided it was time to, you know, look a little bit further afield and see what we could find. And we were familiar with Orbit through Dan Gephardt's talks at various uh, Ember conferences over the years. He's, he has spoken at Ember NYC about Orbit in the past. And so we decided to do a spike with it. And after about four or five hours into the spike, my colleague Matt McManus and I had felt like we really had a good understanding of the, the primitives that Orbit provides. And we started to get pretty excited about the possibilities And the reason for that, if I were to try to sum it up, the reason that it was so exciting for me is that as Ember data is, like the rest of Ember, a pretty opinionated framework. And its opinions in most cases are fantastic. It makes the golden case of interacting with the backend API, particularly a JSON API uh, backend, really smooth, really easy to do. If, you know, having an identity map on the front end is an absolute requirement for, you know, any sophisticated 
Ember, uh, you know, single page application. Mm-hmm. And so really great stuff. But when all you know is Ember data, and I would kind of put myself in that category, you don't necessarily even conceive of what the other possibilities of are how data could flow in a single page app. And what Orbit does is it provides these primitives that you can build an Ember data-like experience with, but those choices, the specific choices, are yours to make. So let me see if I can summarize some of those. So in Ember data, we have our store and we have a remote backend that we talk to, and the way that we talk to it is controlled by serializers and adapters generally. Mm. In Orbit, we have a number of sources, and a source can be one of them could be like Ember Data Store. Another source could represent the remote API and know how to make requests to it and read data from it. We all, you could also have a source, and we do now in our app, that is responsible for talking to Cordova to persist information offline. And then you can set up what Orbit calls strategies between these stores. And so we can say, hey, when... We make a request, uh, say a query to the store, we want that to flow through to our remote API. And when the response to the query comes back, we want that to flow back to the store. And then from the store, we want it to flow to our offline store. And so all of this stuff is kind of happening naturally as you're interacting, as users interacting with the app. And then when you are, uh, when we're first kind of booting up that the app experience before we activate these strategies, we can say, hey, first, sync everything from the offline store into the in-memory store as a starting point. And so it creates these, these interactions, which are you know, fairly simple. I don't think anything that, there's nothing that I described that I think is not possible to kind of grok in this kind of audio format, the basics mm-hmm. of, but it's stuff that actually is extremely, would be extremely difficult to do and set up with Ember data on its own. And so it's really kind of having this slightly lower level, having these great composable primitives that is a thing for me that's the most exciting about Orbit. And so the work that we've been doing kind of since we've adopted it, we've been doing some open source work in that in the ecosystem with under Dan's guidance. There's been a couple of things. One is, you know, we have an app, an existing app that uses Ember data. And so we did some work on Ember Orbit in order to allow it to live side by side with Ember data to allow for either indefinitely living side by side or for a gradual iterative transition. And then the other work that we did is around extensibility of Orbit to provide better APIs and hooks to be able to you know, override and do the kinds of logic and offline storage that we that we wanted to do. And Dan's been incredible, you know, as a maintainer and you know helping to guide that work. We've also been really excited to work with Paul Shivard, um, Tchak on the internet's who for me personally, going back to the nostalgic portion of this is, you know, <laughs> is somebody who I remember from those very early days in that campfire room of Ember. And so it's, it's kind of fun to be kind of hacking and submitting PRs side by side with Paul once again, all these years later. So I'm super excited about the, the future of Orbit and, and what it empowers for, um, you know, sophisticated single page apps that have data needs that you know, maybe are a little bit more complex and off the beaten path than than the kind of golden path that Ember Data embraces. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's exactly that was exactly my experience. That the Orbit primitives just they they make sense, and they're also uh, they can be brought in kind of piecemeal. Like you don't need to like this is an Orbit app. It it can kind of be segmented. I, I was working in a Glimmer app though, so I was requiring the Orbit stuff like individually. I wasn't using uh, like an add on, so I think maybe that was a little bit of a different experience, but. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, really cool stuff. So I think it's a, it's a space that people should watch for sure. Dan's been, you know, as you know, works closely with the with the Ember Data team as well, and I think they've been continuing to explore, you know, what does that interop pattern look like? Yeah. So I, I think I just recently saw Dan tweet, maybe like just a few days ago, saying that they're they're actively working on on that interop that you're talking about. Like, they're I think they have found some sort of happy middle ground. Like, it's not. Orbit or Ember Data, it's you know, it's they they can kind of be separate things. Yeah, yeah, I don't know all the details of it yet, so but I'm excited to excited about that prospect, and I think that that would, you know, I, I think that in Ember we Ember kind of core Ember source, you know, if you will, we have really great layered APIs that let you kind of drop down and work at the appropriate layer to the complexity of your problem, and I think that 
my hope is that, you know, with Orbit kind of being embraced by Ember Data, that we could get there for Ember Data as well. So that we're not going to give up any of the great opinions and ease of use that Ember Data brings to the table, but that there will be an escape valve, an escape hatch where you can drop right. down a little bit lower. Definitely. Definitely. So are there any resources that you'd like to, to shout out for our listeners to uh, to follow up on Orbit? Like, uh, I wonder if there is like maybe a, is there a meta tracking issue or something somewhere talking about just the Ember Data Orbit stuff? Or is it more? Not that I've seen. I'll give you kind of the community resources that, that I've been using that I know about is there's a, an active Gitter channel, gitter.im, I believe, slash orbit.js slash orbit. JS. And Dan's active in there, as well as a bunch of other community members. Miguel Camba was just posting a, a situation today that he was trying to figure out kind of how best to model with Orbit. And there's a you know, great discussion around that. The the Orbit guides that Dan's created are you know pretty excellent. And that's definitely some place to spend time with. And then the, the last big thing that I would say, and this was this was really like key to me being able to contribute to Ember as well is, you know, read the source code. It's Orbit, the kind of core monorepo is written in TypeScript, which I'm relatively new to, but I found that Orbit was a very accessible code base to learn, both be able to learn TypeScript and kind of really appreciate the value of it in a project like this, as well as to kind of understand the primitives in 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 a deep way and then be able to contribute the project. So those are probably the three things is, uh, you know, get her the guides and read the code. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Luke, for spending the time to join us. And obviously, thanks for hosting Ember and uh, kind of creating Ember NYC and all your work in the, in the ecosystem. I really appreciate it. And it's been great having you on the show. Well, awesome. Thanks for having me. And thank you for all your years of Ember Weekend. It's an incredible resource for the community. And it's great to be part of it today. All right, so that's all we have for this week. We'll catch you next time for probably another RFC rundown. What are we calling it? Roundup. RFC roundup. RFC roundup. Yes, yes. Uh, that seems in, like we're overdue. Check in on the octane. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so stay tuned for that. I'm Chase McCarthy. I'm Jonathan Jackson. I'm Robert Jackson. And we're joined. I'm Amelia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, perfect. It. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.